Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is the second part of a multi-part series where we are talking about the University of Idaho murders. I wanted to bring you an update with whatever information that I could find on the case that's happened since we first talked about this story back in January. Before we get started, I want to thank you all for the great feedback on part one. The biggest takeaway from that one, of course, being Fred blowing a sneeze through that squishy snout of his, he tends to lay under my desk or next to my chair when I record, and he often makes noises like shaking off or scratching. Sometimes he randomly starts barking, and usually I edit that stuff out because it distracts me and throws me off. But that one, it happened when I was recording really late into the evening prior to leaving for California, so I was just like, screw it. I was too lazy to go back and edit it out. But anyway, I wanted to quickly go through the show's social media stuff real quick because I am anxious to get back to this story. There's lots of stuff that I want to talk about and share with you. As always, follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget that if you're interested in helping to support this podcast, you can do so through Patreon. The June bonus will be available soon. I hope. Very soon, I promise. It will be. I'm getting to it. If not, then I'll put out two in July. How about that? And if a subscription is not your thing, you can make a one-time donation to the show through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I would like to thank Anne B., Eloisa N., Elizabeth H., Carrie, Kathy M., Kimberly T., Jeffrey C., Jane G., Kim B., Lyle C., Michael S., and Barbara A., for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, going annual, or contributing on PayPal. And just so you know that your help is going to good use and greatly appreciated, I just had all three dogs checked up and their vaccinations updated, which is good for three years. Fred had an ear infection, so I got the medications to clear that up. Fred, the problem child, also needed sedatives and a follow-up visit for his ears and for his nails to be trimmed, which was not a good time. I posted about it on the Facebook group. Some of you may have seen that. I also got some motion sickness pills for my little one, Rhoda, because I took her to California with me on this last trip, and she gets car sick. So when all was said and done, the two vet visits and all the health checkup stuff and the medications and everything came to $1,248. I also finally licensed the doggies in Clark County here in Nevada, which I've been procrastinating on. The only thing I have left to do is Fred has a couple of little fatty bumps. I guess they're called like globules. I forgot what the veterinarian said. There's, he has one near his armpit and one on his belly. The vet said that... They feel fatty and they feel benign, but, you know, if I want to have them removed, it's going to be kind of expensive. The recovery takes about a week and Fred will have to wear a cone, which he does not like. I mean, what dog does, right? But I don't know. Fred is like particularly particular about everything except for belly rubs and treats. So... I don't know. I wanted to get your opinions. What do you think? He's nine and a half years old. Do you think it would be beneficial for Fred's long-term health to have those fatty bumps removed? If any of you have had this type of surgery on your dog, I'd like to know about it. Tell me on social media. Email me. Message me. You know where to find me. All right. So let's get this episode started. So in part one, we talked about the suspect that's in custody, and that has been recently indicted for the murders of Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin back on November 13th, 2022. We went over the timeline of events, and we talked a little bit about the suspect's past, some of his troubling online postings in a support forum on Visual Snow. Someone commented on one of my posts about that episode that they have permanent visual snow caused by a stroke that they suffered a decade ago and said that it really is exactly like looking at the world through television static, but it is something that 
they have gotten used to. And it really shouldn't be used as an excuse for having a disturbing personality, to which I agree. We also talked about the suspect's time in college and the timeline leading up to his move to Pullman, Washington, where he would begin his work on his PhD at Washington State. We're going to go ahead and pick up the story from there. Among the things also learned about the suspect through the investigation was that he, to some extent, had a vested interest in law enforcement. Around the same time that he had made the purchase of the K-Bar combat knife, this was in about April of 2022 or so, and just as he was wrapping up his master's program and getting ready to move on to his doctorate, the suspect had applied for an internship at the Pullman Police Department. He did an online interview in which he expressed an interest in providing his assistance with rural law enforcement agencies with his apparent expertise in enhancing their technology and data collection in the daily operations of their agency. A former FBI expert who spoke to Dateline and our good old friend Keith Morrison said that it's her belief that this was the suspect's way of getting on the inside of his local law enforcement agency so he would be able to see exactly what they did, how they did it, and how they went about conducting their criminal investigations. Just like the BTK killer and Edmund Kemper, right? I mean, they weren't necessarily trying to get jobs with the law enforcement agencies, but they were at least hanging out with the local cops. Like Kemper would go to the bar and he would sit around and have beers with the cops who were actually investigating him and the killings of the young women in their area. Right under their noses, right? All of this is speculation. Remember, the suspect in the story we're talking about today could have been just innocently looking for an internship to fulfill a requirement for his PhD. But I don't think that there is anything innocent about anything that this guy did. All of it. He had an agenda. So yeah, innocently looking for an internship. Right. We all know that it is much more difficult nowadays to get away with these types of crimes like they used to back in the old days. There are lots of types of crimes that are no longer trendy because it's getting more and more impossible to not leave a digital trail or a digital footprint everywhere you go. You just don't see a whole lot of stick em ups and bank robberies and kidnappings for ransoms or even serial killing anymore. Technology and science are watching and tracking everybody. So in order to do something like what the suspect in this case did, Either one of a number of things has to happen in order for a killer to get away with a mass killing like this. The killer either has to go in with the intentions of taking his or her own life or being killed. The killer has to pin his or her hopes on an inept, bumbling police force with a shoddy investigation. Or he or she, along with a really good attorney, tries successfully to outsmart and outwit the system or the killer is somebody on the inside. And it sounds like the suspect may have been working with a couple of those things. He was in a small town, rural area. He was trying to outsmart the system, and he was trying to get in on the inside. Let's not forget, he was attempting to camouflage himself with a bunch of college degrees, as if that in and of itself would have law enforcement looking right past him. They would never suspect this guy, right? Highly intelligent, highly educated, a respectable, upstanding guy in good standing at the university and in the community. Yeah, sure. And to the suspect, what I would have to say is, you know what? The mightier have fallen, my friend. And they sure as hell drive a nicer car than an old Hyundai Elantra. I bet it was the base model, too. No hate on Hyundais at all. I have a Hyundai. Though it's the Sonata, it's bigger than the Elantra, and I have the fully loaded one because my last one was a base model and I was just kind of over it. But anyway, I love the two Hyundais that I've owned, and maybe 20 or 30 years ago, I would be okay in an Elantra, but I've definitely leveled up from mid-size to full-size when it comes to vehicles. 
And you know, that white Hyundai Elantra of his that he was zipping around back and forth between Pullman, Washington and Moscow, Idaho in, that was one of the things that I pointed to in our initial episode on this case back in January as being one of the stupid things that Mr. Smarty Pants did when he decided that he was going to choose homicidal violence. Driving around in his own car to do murder. I guess he missed the day when they went over automotive forensics in class. Because if he had gone over the fact that cars can be identified on pretty much every camera around town these days, they didn't have to have a stupid face on the camera shot or even his license plates to eventually be able to link that Alondra back to him, obviously. And realistically, they wouldn't have been able to say for sure that the Alondra seen coming and going from the scene of the crime the morning of the murders had anything to do with the killings if it weren't for all the other evidence swirling around this suspect. The Elantra was just another piece of the puzzle that pulled everything together, which pointed the investigation squarely at him. It was the collection of circumstances as a whole, not just his Hyundai Elantra, that wouldn't have stood on its own. None of the pieces of evidence would have stood alone to build a strong case against this guy. Put it all together, and yeah, this guy did this. Allegedly, but most definitely allegedly. (laughs) If this guy was as smart as he thought he was, he would have, first off, not murdered people, but then he would have not used his own car. He should have also realized that perhaps it would have been a good idea to not bring a knife sheath with him to a murder. I mean, what the hell was he doing with the knife sheath with him? Why would he bring it in the first place, much less bring it all the way into the house? But His stupidity dates back weeks and months before he even did that. He bought the murder weapon on his own Amazon account seven months before the murders. As if that would never be traced back to him, right? Because he's the smartest smarty pants in the room. He thinks to himself that he'll never get caught. He's the guy that went online and researched the best killing knife in the world and landed on the K-Bar. He ordered that on Amazon and had it sent to himself. And then his dumbass probably held that knife, took it in and out of its sheath, played with it, admired it, fantasized about what he was going to do with it, all the while getting his stupid DNA all over it. Yeah, here's a guy who is clearly planning a murder, getting his gross, murdery, loser cooties all over the thing. And then he goes and brings the knife sheath with him to a murder. You know what? Now that I think about it, maybe they should let this guy teach criminology classes at the local university. Nobody in his class would be getting away with anything. Anyway, circling back, the suspect did not land that internship at the Pullman Police Department, which doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, if you think about it, what sorts of vibes did this guy have to be giving off in order to hold a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and to be in a PhD program in order to not be given an unpaid job. However, the suspect did get a job as an assistant for one of his professors at Washington State for a class called Criminal Procedures. One of the students, a guy named Hayden Stitchfield, Stinch, Stitchfield? Whatever, I can't read my writing. His name is Hayden, and he was in the class at the time During the semester when the suspect was working as the teacher's assistant, he was interviewed on Dateline, and he gives some pretty interesting insight into the kind of person the suspect was. He said, throughout the semester, he kept grading us down, like he just kept on applying PhD standards to our 300-level work, 300-level work being juniors or third-year college students. He wanted us to read his mind and put down exactly what he would have said. So yeah, you give this guy a little bit of power and he goes on this power trip, cutting down third-year college students who are probably just as smart, capable, and intellectual as he thought he was. And this kind of goes back into my own theories and my own perceptions of what this guy was like. But I believe a part of this suspect's goal was to elevate himself on paper because he couldn't elevate himself in life. 
It's the only way, it's the only place that this suspect had complete control over his life and the lives of others. He wielded this power that he was given as a teaching assistant on students' assignments. Such a big man, wasn't he? Just like the suspect had to have the best killing knife in the world, he also had to have the best and highest college degree that he could possibly get. Because there was no way that this guy was ever going to be the best at anything on his own. He needed all of these props and all of these extras around him in order to feel or appear smart and powerful. Because the truth was, he was stupid and weak. He couldn't rely on getting the internship or the job that he wanted. He couldn't stand around and wait for, nor was he ever really going to be able to get the girl that he ever wanted either. He was going to have to impress in other ways. A high-level college degree, lots of money, because it certainly wasn't going to be him on his own. His personality or his lame comments like, you've got nice birthing hips. He was also going to have to step up his car game too. And the fact is, if he was looking to impress popular and pretty 20 or 21-year-old college girls, it's not going to be about any of that stuff. These girls are looking for young, cool, fun guys, not 28-year-old PhD students who are teacher's aides grading papers driving around in Elantras. Again, no hate on Elantras. So during the course of the investigation, it was revealed that the suspect had made several trips from his place in Pullman, Washington, to the area where the King Road house where the killings took place was located. He made that drive at night, and it's not that far, maybe about 15 minutes or so if that, depending on speed and traffic. In the Dateline episode, Keith Morrison made it sound really intriguing when talking about this. These visits that the suspect had apparently made several times in the days and weeks leading up to the murders. Keith said, A particular neighborhood just off campus where investigators believe he found something that he had been seeking. (sighs) Keith just has a way of putting things right. Anyway, from there, they spoke to an expert who studies the reasons why people do the things that they do, like seek out, target, and murder someone unsuspecting. It's the things that we hope to find out when the time comes for the suspect to be made to answer for these crimes. Did he target one of the victims who lived in the house? If so, who and why? Or was this perhaps him taking out his anger and frustrations on one of the victims who represented whatever it was that had the suspect having it in his mind that made him want to carry out these violent killings. Because make no mistake about this, these killings were very personal. It's been speculated that the suspect developed some sort of fixation or obsession with either Kaylee Gonsalves or Madison Mogan that he somehow became aware of them through social interactions, not necessarily directly with them, but more likely because the girls had a really busy social life as well as a busy social media life. And they were just simply two young ladies that not only represented everything that the suspect likely wanted in a woman but could never have, but also because they were the representation of everything that the suspect wanted to be when it came to the lives that they lived. And he was likely keenly aware that he was the type of guy who girls like them either laughed at, made fun of, or just flat out ignored. Again, this is all just conjecture, but it's become such a common thing these days with mass killers. And to be honest, The whole comment about the nice birthing hips, I mean, that in and of itself gave me serial killer vibes all over that statement. Keith Morrison made the comment that this active and fun social life was something that the suspect was basically locked out of. Most of the time, people will accept that they just have to find a flock of friends who are in the same boat as them and just roll with it. Or you can be like this guy and other young men that we've talked about on this show or heard about in other podcasts or documentaries who settle on vengeance and revenge instead. So Madison and Zana were both employees at a local restaurant called the Mad Greek. Both of them waited tables. And as stated in the last episode, the suspect was vegan 
and this place offered a handful of vegan options. After the murders, friends of the girls wondered if perhaps the suspect encountered one or both of them at that restaurant, as he was known to have gone there at least on two occasions. The suspect could then have familiarized himself with the girls by way of social media, or perhaps, like I speculated in the first part, maybe he showed up at a party at their house. Because of the suspect's various nighttime trips to the area around the King Road home, the suspicion is that these were reconnaissance trips. In other words, he was stalking, spying, creeping around, casing the joint. He definitely strikes me as the type of man who does his research, and this murder plot would have been no different. Again, we're not going to know until either the suspect decides to speak up for himself, which is highly doubtful because he wasn't even man enough to stand up in court to speak his plea of not guilty, or we hear the story through the trial, if there is one, or perhaps an evidence dump once the case is adjudicated. Hopefully, we'll figure out how and why this all came about. We know that the suspect had a couple of encounters with police because his driving is as shitty as his face, and those encounters were captured on police body cam video. There was one that they had on Dateline, which happened almost exactly one month before the killings on October 14, 2022. The officer walked up to him sitting there looking dumb in his white Elantra, and she said something like, you're aware of why I pulled you over, right? You ran a red light. I don't know if any of you have seen this video or the clips of it. I know I can't stand looking at this guy, but his eyes, oh my God, they are creepy. Big, wide, empty, dark, soulless, all the adjectives. His voice is as flat as his affect. He just looks scared. He looks like a coward. And he's probably burning up inside with rage at the fact that he was getting pulled over by a woman. He managed to talk his way out of this ticket. His excuses were as shitty as his driving and his face as he stated, It never occurred to me that there was actually something wrong. I, I'm... I'm actually from a rural area, so we don't have crosswalks unless I visit an area where there's crosswalks. And then it's, it's not very frequent. I do apologize if I was asking too many questions about the law. I wasn't trying to be like, and then she cut him off because he was sounding so lame and said, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. She didn't say whatever. That's just my speculation on what she was probably thinking in her head. But anyway, this officer let the suspect off with a warning. A month before that run-in with police, in September of 2022, the suspect wasn't able to make excuses and talk his way out of a ticket when he was pulled over on this previous occasion, which happened in Moscow, Idaho, the city where these murders would take place just two months later. The traffic stop happened just before midnight. And of all the lame reasons to get pulled over, the suspect was pulled over for not wearing his seatbelt. Okay, there's times when I'm at the shopping center that's literally next door to my apartment complex. Sometimes I'll make the drive out of the parking lot and turn right into my place and I won't put my seatbelt on. Most of the time I put it on out of habit. But this guy wasn't near his house. He was in Moscow where he'd better have some good reasons for why he was there in the middle of the night like that. He didn't get pulled over for not having a seatbelt on. He got pulled over for being an out-of-state vehicle, looking and acting weird in a town where he had no business being in, in the middle of the night. The fact that he was alone made him even more suspicious. Being a creep might not be enough probable cause to pull somebody over, so maybe him not wearing the seatbelt was. He did get the ticket. But all this encounter likely did for the suspect was to teach him a few things about his murder plot. One was that he needed to wear a seatbelt when he sets out to kill. And two, he would be getting pulled over for frivolous stuff even around midnight. Maybe it was this traffic ticket that caused the suspect to decide that he needed to drive into Moscow at least two or three hours later than that, but still before the sun rose. 
which would have been the time of night that he would have been traveling from Pullman to Moscow in those early morning hours of November 13th, 2022, when those four people were murdered. The suspect was pulled over 1.5 miles or 2.4 kilometers away from the King Road home. But Moscow is a small town. No matter where you are, you are only a couple of miles from everything within its borders. From east to west, Moscow is only about 4.3 miles or 7 kilometers wide, and from north to south, it's only 3.4 miles or 5.5 kilometers long. But still, what's he doing in Moscow in the middle of the night by himself? I'd like to know. Well, come to find out, according to the data dump that investigators did on the suspect's cell phone, that traffic stop in Moscow where he got the ticket for not wearing his seatbelt, that was actually the first of approximately a dozen visits that the suspect made to the area near and around the King Road house. And one of those trips was in such close proximity to the home itself that he would have been able to connect to their Wi-Fi connection. So what this led investigators to do was canvas the area in order to try and see if there was anything else weird or suspicious going on in the area with other people in the weeks and months leading up to the murders, particularly during those times that the suspect drove into Moscow where his phone placed him there. You see, once again, a criminology PhD student doing exactly the things that we all know we're not supposed to do. Yeah, a listener commented on one of my posts on the first part of this series, mentioning that they had a PhD in criminology and that they do not learn how to become serial killers. They wanted to make that clear and that it's mostly academic stuff and writing papers, which totally makes sense. But it's my own conjecture that this guy was trying to learn how to go about carrying out the perfect murder and not getting caught by studying up on the subject of criminology and criminal justice. He was trying to become the smartest guy in the room. But what he failed to take into consideration are the what-ifs, such as, what if I become a suspect? Then, you would need to start covering your tracks weeks, if not months, before the murders, not after the fact. I'm not going to sit here and say that I have the perfect formula for the perfect murder, but what it seems to often come down to in several high-profile cases that are controversial is putting a considerable amount of time, space, and distance between the planning and the actual carrying out of the crime or the discovery of the crime. Kind of like Casey Anthony or, say, like Ednan Syed, perhaps Josh Powell, maybe, dare I even say, Scott Peterson. If you believe all four of those people to be guilty of what they were accused of, and I know there are a lot of you out there who believe Adnan Syed is innocent, but let's just say for argument's sakes that he did it. The common thread between all four of these people is time. Time that passed between when the person that they were accused of murdering disappeared and the time when they were actually charged with the murder. With the exception of Josh Powell, whose wife Susan Powell was never found, and he ended up taking his own life and the lives of his two children before answers could ever be had. He's another selfish, cowardly, small man who took his secrets to the grave. But in all of these cases, police and prosecutors had or went on to have a really hard time with each of them because of time, space, and distance. And because of that, the planning if there was any planning that went into each of these killings of the victims in their cases, it all became circumstantial. And what the time did was give evidence a chance to become destroyed. Important evidence like DNA. All of these cases sorely lacked that kind of forensic evidence linking Casey Anthony, Ednan Syed, Josh Powell, and Scott Peterson to the crimes that they were accused of. Luckily for investigators in the University of Idaho murders, the suspect left his DNA behind on a vital piece of evidence that's going to be very, very hard for him to explain away, along with all the circumstantial evidence that the suspect himself created. So what do we make of all these trips to Moscow, 12 of them in all? 
Well, the behaviors of people like the suspect, you know, that mind hunter kind of stuff, FBI profiling, interviewing serial killers, etc., etc. It's been learned that these guys work their way up to committing murder. They don't just get up one morning and be like, today seems like a good day to do murder. There's this progression and this lead up to the ultimate act of violence. And the expert that Keith Morrison spoke to on the Dateline episode called them nuisance crimes. Now, I'm just going to say up front that there's no indication yet that we know of that the suspect in the Idaho murderer's case committed any sorts of nu- nuisance crimes ahead of time. But when I heard this, the person who immediately popped into my head was that guy from Canada, that Royal Canadian Air Force colonel who turned out to be a serial rapist and murderer. The second person who came to mind is the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. I wouldn't call what these men did early on in their careers as quote-unquote nuisance crimes, but relatively speaking, compared to murder, which is what both men eventually escalated to, the early crimes could be classified as somewhat nuisances. While D'Angelo was way more prolific, he raped and killed many more victims than Russell Williams did. You would think it's because Williams was kind of a little bit busy being a colonel in the Royal Canadian Air Force doing stuff like flying Queen Elizabeth around Canada, showing her all the sights and whatnot. I mean, that's a pretty good cover story, right? Hanging out with Her Majesty and other heads of state. Probably not going to come up on the police radar, which where he's from, they're called the Ontario Provincial Police, right? You know them. That is what makes his story so incredible. His standing in the Canadian military. Russell Williams's crimes only spanned about three years, and they started off with a lot of these so-called nuisances. Beginning in September of 2007 through November of 2009, Russell Williams committed at least 82 break-ins or attempted break-ins that were described as pedophiliac fetish-related crimes where he would steal young girls' underwear. Then he would often break into the same home over and over again, unbeknownst to the residents, but they would start to see that things were missing or amiss inside their houses. From there, Russell Williams escalated his crimes to sexual assault, but without any penetration, and eventually he began raping women, and before long, he ended up murdering two women. Like the suspect in the Idaho murders, Russell Williams kept up with the police investigation into his crimes. In fact, Williams kept very detailed notes and logs. He took thousands of pictures and videos as well, all the while working in the Air Force. Yeah, that guy was a strange bird. And so was the suspect in the Idaho murders. All of that is to say that he too is being looked at in regards to some weird nuisance-type crimes that went on in Moscow prior to the four murders. Now, the suspect has not been named as a person of interest in any of these things that happened prior to the murders, but because of the gag order and things that are being kept pretty close to the vest, nobody is saying whether or not he's even being looked at as a suspect in these earlier crimes either. All anyone is saying that it is not uncommon for there to be these minor criminal acts carried out before the person actually commits the murders. But the incidents have some people wondering if the suspect was involved, considering that he had driven out that way so many times prior to the murders. So one of these incidents occurred in March of 2022 at a sorority house. One of the residents of the house called police to report that her suitcase had been taken out of her car. It was in her car the night before. She had gone outside in the morning to bring it in and ended up finding it in the middle of the street, which is really strange, right? Her suitcase was filled with her clothes and it was inside her car. That's where she had left it the night before. And she said that some of the things that she had left on her dashboard and in her center console were also stuffed inside the suitcase too 
which was something that she did not do. And what was the most disturbing part of this quote-unquote nuisance crime was that she found her underwear stuffed into the cup holder of her car. Her underwear had been packed inside the suitcase. It didn't seem like that big of a deal at the time. The officer mentioned to the young woman that there had been some vehicle crimes going on in the neighborhood lately. But the thing that was concerning to the woman and maybe should have been considered more concerning to the police was the fact that her underwear had been tampered with. Car thieves or people breaking into cars aren't really trying to mess around with people's unmentionables. Usually, anyway. They're there for the valuables, and I just think that there should have been more attention paid to that incident, and I find it to be really troubling. But anyway, another thing that stood out in the police body cam video of this call regarding the suitcase was the fact that the house where the murders would take place eight months later can be seen in the distance, literally just steps away. But like I said, the suspect hasn't been identified as having anything to do with this incident. And it did happen several months before he moved into his apartment in Pullman, Washington. So I guess we're going to have to wait and see what the investigation turns up on this. If he happened to be in the area at the time of the suitcase incident, had he flown out for a visit to tour the campus, to secure an apartment, to interview for an internship, whatever he might have been there in advance for, it would only be four months later that the suspect moved there from Pennsylvania. It is known that the suspect had already settled on attending Washington State by that time. And it was around that time also that he tried to get that internship at the Pullman Police Department. Yes, the suspect was very busy working on finishing up his master's degree. However, because of COVID, all of his courses were online. So he could have been anywhere in the world. He didn't necessarily have to be home in Pennsylvania. We're going to have to wait and see if investigators can place him or his cell phone in the area at the time that this woman's suitcase was tampered with. Because I am also very interested in finding out this information too. One of the things that has been discovered about the suspect's time in Pullman, Washington, is that while he was taking his classes and working as a teacher's assistant, is that some of the female students said that there was really something off about the suspect that caused them to feel really uncomfortable, according to an article in the New York Times. The headline of the article said, University Investigated Idaho Murder Suspect's Behavior Around the Time of the Killings. The suspect had a verbal altercation with the professor that he was an assistant for and was investigated as a result of this, as well as his behavior, it was also looked into when it came to female students in the time just prior to the killings. The behavior that the suspect displayed was so disturbing in the weeks leading up to the murders that Washington State launched an investigation into his conduct around women. He was counseled by the school administrators regarding the verbal altercation that he had had with the professor. And this we didn't know back when we first covered the story in January following the suspect's arrest and the release of the probable cause affidavit. He was actually fired from that teaching assistant job. So yeah, all sorts of red flags going on, right? And all of this information came from some interviews with sources connected with the University of Washington and the school's records. The New York Times article said that less than two weeks before the murders, the suspect was summoned to a meeting with school faculty members to discuss the various reports and increasing concerns about his behavior. And they actually had come with documentation regarding the reports made about him and confronted him with it. It was a timeline that the university had put together that provided the justification for the later decision to fire him from his position with the school. This meeting was apparently the culmination of a series of discussions that the university faculty had amongst themselves during the handful of months that the suspect had been a student there. Remember, this was his very first semester. So he had been on the job for all of maybe three months before he had a serious talking to about his weird behavior. And this would be less than two weeks before the murders when he was formally counseled. And you know this counseling? I mean, 
put yourself in the suspect's mind. Put yourself in his place. They're not just speaking to him about a verbal altercation with the professor, which takes a lot of nerve to be acting up like that in school in the first place. I mean, where does the suspect think that he is? Middle school? How arrogant and full of himself this guy was, right? Who gets into a verbal spat with their PhD criminology professor that they're working for? I would never verbally challenge a college instructor. And I went to community college too. Whether you like your instructor or not, you've got to be respectful. These people hold your GPA in their hands. If you can't do it, then just sit down and shut up and bear it or just drop the class. And the suspect wasn't even a student. He was supposed to be a teaching assistant. His job was to sit there and learn and listen. And he doesn't even have the pressure of doing any of the assignments like a student has to. And it was only for one semester. He couldn't control himself enough to get through one measly semester without getting into it with the professor. But as I was saying, they weren't just speaking to him about the verbal altercation with his instructor. They were also talking to him about his disturbing behavior around women and how he was making them feel uncomfortable. Knowing what we know about this guy, then yeah, we know he says creepy stuff to girls like, you have nice birthing hips. I'm sure he creeped everyone out, both men and women. And you know, this whole thing about being counseled about his behavior just three months into his teaching assistant job is to me a testament to what we've been saying all along about this guy. He's pathetic. And his patheticness was something that he could not control. Or at least he couldn't control people's reactions to it. He wasn't able to get that internship at the Pullman Police Department. So he ended up applying for this job as a teaching assistant. Looking at the suspect on paper or on his resume, he probably presents as pretty impressive. So Washington State gave him a chance. And it ended up taking them less than three months to wise up to this guy's pathology. The suspect simply cannot hide the kind of man that he truly is beneath the surface, beneath the veneer of those impressive college degrees. It's like I said, this guy can control his course of study. He can control how far he wanted to pursue his education, but he has absolutely no control over how people perceive him, how they treat him, or how they react to him. And the fact of the matter is, the higher the suspect went through school, the higher he achieved, the more difficult it was going to be for him to hide his true self because all he was doing was surrounding himself with people who are more intuitive, more instinctive, and more insightful. He may have been able to masquerade as a high-achieving intellectual who knows how to Google stuff, but clearly he wasn't able to fool PhD-level scholars and professors for very long. Obviously, they caught on real quick. So the Idaho murder suspect gets a tongue lashing. And then what? What kind of state of mind do you think that that put the suspect in? We can only imagine. And as stated, they didn't just talk to him about being disrespectful to the professors. They talked to him about his behavior around women. So whatever was going on in that feeble little mind of his, it's showing through. And nobody is trying to pay thousands upon thousands of dollars to be in a graduate program at Washington State only to have bushy brows making eyes at them. Imagine if this guy ever made it through college and actually got a teaching position in a high school or in a college. Just how many young women that he would be watching and obsessing over. To tell you the truth, it's probably a good thing in the end that this guy had this overblown sense of himself, thinking that he would actually be able to earn his PhD, and then he would be able to walk around with people having to refer to him as Dr. Suspect. He didn't need to go beyond his master's degree in order to teach college. He probably knew himself well enough to know that he needed to bring something way bigger and better than just himself in order to come across as someone legitimate who could be taken seriously in whatever direction he was going to go with this. He needed that PhD in order to legitimize himself. 
It's not really a big stretch to suggest that this counseling that the suspect received could have been a trigger for him. There are many, many mass killings out there that have been carried out by disgruntled people, people who have been fired. And, you know, prior to getting fired, they were likely verbally reprimanded and written up. And I'm sure that there's a protocol to go through before someone is actually terminated. Getting fired from a job is one of the motivators in workplace violence. And the notion of this gained some traction in the 1980s with a rash of shootings and killings that were taking place at post offices. And I don't like the term going postal, but that's what people started calling it at the time. And here with the Idaho murder suspect, we're talking about a guy that we know who was already on edge, already teetering on the brink. It seems like he had been that way for a while. Getting this verbal reprimand at work, that could have been a factor in what ended up sending this guy over the edge. The suspect was the way that he was. His ways of thinking were documented on that support group website for people suffering from visual snow. And you know, it doesn't seem like things were ever going to get better for this guy, at least not in his own mind, unless he was willing to seek help. But admitting that he needed professional help would have meant that he needed to admit to his own defects. Based on his writings in the past and the way that he was handling things, it appears to me that the suspect was trying to sort through his problems himself. He went on that visual snow forum. He decided that the answers to his issues were dietary related. We know that he self-medicated with marijuana and heroin in high school, addictions for which he went to rehab which he may have been compelled to do so by his parents since he was a minor. Then the suspect became hyper-focused on trying to higher educate himself out of his problems. Then he ends up getting reprimanded three months into his very first teaching assistant position in his very first semester of his PhD program. That's going to go on his record, and it's going to be a thing that would follow him around for the remainder of his PhD program. He's going to be known as the loose cannon that creeps women out. And that's going to be the word around campus about this guy. Amongst the professors, he's an arrogant jerk who has no respect for authority. And amongst the student body, he's on the weirdo watch list. It's like, look out, ladies. If this guy tries talking to you, run the other way. That's what the suspect's college experience had turned into, just like that and it would follow him around for the remainder of his time there. That PhD was going to be the thing to provide the suspect with the validity, authority, and substantiality that he was sorely lacking throughout his entire life. It was now in jeopardy. And, you know, to be clear, this is all my speculation, but we just know how weak, small-minded men like the suspect do not cope well with any kind of rejection. And we all know that getting counseled is the first step towards getting canned. I'll get back to that New York Times article about this in a minute. I just wanted to mention the suspect's choice of colleges when he decided to go for his PhD in criminology and criminal justice. I think it was in the Dateline episode or something else that I may have been listening to that said that Washington State University had one of the best criminal justice and criminology programs in the country. And it's only one of a handful of schools that offer all three degree programs in criminology, the bachelor's, master's, and PhD. So I looked up the rankings for the best criminology programs in the United States, and I kind of found something rather interesting on the list. It was on usnews.com in an article on best criminology schools. Washington State University is ranked on this list 23rd in the country, and it's tied for 23rd with the University of South Carolina, Columbia. The interesting thing that I found was that within the state of Pennsylvania, there were two schools ranked higher than Washington State in terms of their criminology programs, Pennsylvania State University, which came in 5th, and Temple University, which came in 14th. Even the number one ranked school in criminology, the University of Maryland, is within a decent 
driving distance. It's only under four hours away from the suspect's hometown, and that's only an hour further than the Penn State location. For someone who spent his whole entire life in eastern Pennsylvania, who graduated there from high school, went on to college to earn both his bachelor's and his master's, all in the same area, it did have me wondering why he chose to head west out to Washington State in order to pursue his PhD. For someone who struck me as a person who had to have the best, who had to have the best college degree, had to have the best combat knife in the world, who had to attend one of the best criminology schools in the country, why then did he choose to work on his doctoral degree thousands of miles away from home? When a school ranked 18 places higher was right there in his home state, a drive just slightly more than two hours away. We don't know why the suspect chose Washington State, but because he bought that K-Bar knife several months before he moved, it feels like he had a plan. So it has led me to speculate that because he had a plan to do something, the move to Washington was his way of getting away from his family. We don't know what kind of relationship that the suspect had with them, but hearkening back to part one, when I talked about his family becoming suspicious that he may have been involved in the Idaho murders, especially since we now know, thanks to sources that spoke exclusively to Dateline, that the suspect's family, specifically his sisters, actually accused him of possibly having something to do with the four killings. I'll talk more about that later on, possibly in the next part of this series. But yeah, the suspect was acting so bizarrely and doing such weird things that his own family believed that he could have been involved. And to expand on that, I can't help but think that the relationship between the suspect and his sisters, and perhaps his entire family, including his parents, may have been pretty broken. We can kind of get a glimpse on some of that in those postings that we talked about in part one, where he talked about feeling completely disconnected from his family. He said that when he hugged them, he felt nothing. If the suspect was close to the family, and I mean, if they had a really strong, loving bond, they'd be the first ones to stand up and defend him. But we know that there was this disconnection from them. And for him to have randomly decided for the first time at the age of 27 or 28 to go work on his PhD on the other side of the country with a K-bar knife in hand, it makes sense that they would be among the first, they being his family, to come to the realization that not only may he have done this, but the fact that they so easily believed him capable of such a horrifically violent act. So yeah, I think the move to Washington was a calculated one to put a great deal of distance and space between himself and the very people who would know him best the ones who would immediately become suspicious of him if they heard on the news that someone with bushy eyebrows driving a white Hyundai Elantra was a person of interest in the quadruple murder. If that happened at Penn State, you know damn well his family, especially his sisters, maybe after a minute or two of soul searching, would have dropped a dime on his ass so fast. This guy knew that If he wanted to do what he wanted to do, he was going to have to do it far away from his family, as far as possible. And when it comes to the continental United States, when you're in eastern Pennsylvania, it doesn't get much further than the beautiful state of Washington. So yeah, to me, this was a very calculated choice on the suspect's part. By the way, when I looked it up to remind myself how many siblings the suspect had, I found an article from March 28, 2023 on the dailymail.co.uk that said Melissa, who was a mental health therapist and counselor, and Amanda, who was an actress, reportedly lost their jobs over their family connection to the suspected University of Idaho killer. The article reads, the sisters of Idaho murder suspect have lost their jobs despite the family refusing to visit the accused killer in jail, a source has revealed. The 28-year-old is accused of stalking and brutally murdering 
four University of Idaho students at their off-campus home in Moscow last November. The suspect's arrest for the killings has severely impacted his family, who are struggling financially, the source reported. Now the sisters have been let go from their jobs because of their relationship with the accused killer. The statement that the family issued back in January following the suspect's arrest indicated that they were standing by him and that they loved him and supported him. Yeah, everybody says that at first. And as of the publishing of that article, closing in on three months after his arrest, they had not visited the suspect at the jail, but they have reportedly spoken to him on the phone. When I looked up his sister Amanda's IMDb, the only things that she has credited to her name was one film from 2011 entitled Two Days Back, and the other thing that she's credited with is the fact that she's the sister of the suspect. She has no other project listed on her IMDb. The suspect has his own IMDb, which can be linked from his sister's page, and he has seven credits to his name. Albeit all of them, he plays himself. You know, the usual rundown for murder suspects. He's on Dateline, 2020, 48 hours, etc., etc. So yeah, it really sucks for the family of these guys that become notorious like this. Their names become household names. Dahmer, Raider, Kaczynski, Gacy, Berkowitz, and now this guy. His sisters lost their jobs for no other reason than they have the unfortunate same last name. It doesn't seem like either of the suspect sisters got married, or if they did, neither one of them changed their name because it was immediately recognizable and they were given the axe. So getting back to that New York Times article that I was talking about a few minutes ago regarding the suspect and his teaching assistant job. So it was two weeks before, less than two weeks before the murders actually, that he was called into a meeting with the school faculty to talk about the increasing concerns about his behavior. And this was, as they pointed out in the article, a step in developing a timeline that would ultimately lead up to the school actually firing him. There had been a series of discussions about the suspect during the short amount of time that he was in attendance at Washington State and working as a teacher's assistant. And then less than two weeks later, the murders happened. And the New York Times article states, the faculty's concerns with Mr. Suspect grew in the weeks after the November 13th killings, though he had not yet been identified as a suspect. This culminated in the criminal justice department's unusual decision to terminate Mr. Suspect from his teaching assistant role in December, shortly before his arrest, according to three people familiar with his time at the university and a formal letter to Mr. Suspect informing him that he had failed to meet the conditions required to maintain his funding under their program. The faculty made the decision at the department's end-of-year meeting in December, during which professors were also told that some female students reported that Mr. Suspect had made them feel uncomfortable. In one of those instances, Mr. Suspect was accused of following a female student to her car, according to two people familiar with the situation. In the case of the female students, the university's investigation did not find that Mr. Suspect was guilty of any wrongdoing, and it was other matters that prompted the decision to eliminate his funding and remove him from his teaching assistant job. That decision, they said, was based on his unsatisfactory performance as a teaching assistant, including his failure to meet the, quote, norms of professional behavior in his interactions with the faculty. The article said that the suspect began having problems only one month into the fall semester. He had what was described as an altercation on September 23rd with a professor named John Snyder. That was the one that he was a teaching assistant for, according to the termination papers that the Times was able to obtain. Then, about five weeks later, on November 2nd, the heads of the Criminal Justice Department met with the suspect in order to discuss a plan for improvement. It would be only 11 days later that the murders took place. Then, close to a month after the killings, the suspect's termination papers described 
a second altercation that he had with the same professor. This one took place on December 9th. Later on in the month, the criminal justice department heads made the decision to remove the suspect from his teaching assistant position. They cut off his pay, and the paper stated that it was because he had not made progress regarding professionalism. So the termination letter to the suspect did make its way onto the internet, and this is what it said. Mr. Suspect, I am writing this letter to formally inform you of the termination of your teaching assistantship with the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology, effective December 31st, 2022. In keeping with the WSU Graduate Student Handbook, Chapters 9G2 and 12E3, below is a list of events that led you to being deficient on the following contingency clause of your funding maintaining satisfactory progress in fulfilling assistantship service requirements and duties. On September 23, 2022, you had an altercation with the faculty you support as a TA, Professor Snyder. I met with you on October 3rd to discuss norms of professional behavior. On October 21st, Professor Snyder emailed you about the ways in which you failed to meet your expectations as a TA thus far in the semester. As a result, on November 2nd, Graduate Director Willits and I met with you to discuss an improvement plan, which you agreed to, and I shared with you in an email dated November 3rd. We met again on December 7th, this time with Professor Snyder, as well as Dr. Willits and I, to discuss your progress on the improvement plan. While not perfect, we agreed that there was progress. On December 9th, there was another altercation with Professor Snyder in which it became apparent that you had not made progress regarding professionalism and about which I wrote to you on December 11th requesting a meeting. We met on December 19th when I informed you of your termination as a TA for the spring semester. Now, I don't know if the suspect ever made it to that meeting that he was called to. We know that he and his dad were on the road together, headed back to Pennsylvania within a couple of days of that December 9th altercation. His vehicle license plate was captured on a plate reader in Loma, Colorado on December 13th. Looking at maps, Loma is a little more than 14 hours away from the suspect's place in Pullman, Washington. And by 14 hours, I mean by car. It's almost 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. The two of them, the suspect and his father, could do that in a day. Two days later, they were 20 hours further outside of Indianapolis, Indiana, getting pulled over twice within 10 minutes. That happened on December 15th. So I'm sure investigators have an idea of when exactly the suspect and his dad set off for their road trip. And it is plausible that the suspect made it to that December 11th meeting that was mentioned in his termination letter. But what does all of this tell us? Well, now we know that as the suspect was driving badly across the United States, these are the things that he had on his mind. Getting reprimanded twice at his job having two altercations with the professor that he was a TA for, and for following a student to her car, and if he did this case that we're talking about, he's got four murders on his mind. All of that stuff is bouncing around in this guy's head. So I suspect that this guy was never going to go back to Washington but it doesn't seem like he had cleared out his apartment in Pullman yet either. That would mean he would have some explaining to do. And I mean, what would he be going back to anyway? He messed up his chances of doing anything meaningful at Washington State. He's basically on the school's watch list. He's on the outs with the school, the faculty, and the students. Nobody likes this guy. And we know that chances are he's the University of Idaho killer. Once those murders happened and everyone started putting the pieces together, he was on the radar at Washington State. They're freaking criminal justice and criminology professors, a whole building full of them. Of course they're going to figure it out. 
So on top of everything else, the school faculty and maybe even some of the students who knew what the suspect drove and that his eyebrows needed some serious attention, I mean, even his family all the way on the other side of the country figured it out. The family. The family that when he hugged them, he felt nothing. By the way, both of the suspect sisters are also a pair of very beautiful blonde women. Okay, dreamers, I'm going to end the second part of the series here. I don't want to drag this out too long, but I also have lots of thoughts about this case that just pop into my head as we go along here. And I have a lot more to tell you, which will be in the next episode. At my day job, I ended up working more than I thought I was going to have to this week, but it should be slowing back down again. And I intend to get this done quickly because I have the next episode already planned for you. And I have the June Patreon still to do. I haven't forgotten, so don't worry. That's all I've got for you today. I will be back soon with the next installment. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams.